But today, we went from 600,000 Jews that were in place on April, uh, May the 14th, 1948, when Israel, in a single day, became a nation, to now 7 million Jews, more than half of the Jews on the planet today, are in that land we call Israel. And this is important. You say, well, is it prophetically significant? Absolutely. Because the prophecies for the second coming must have the people of Israel in the land for them to fulfill those prophecies. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl is beginning a new series entitled, God's Prophetic Schedule. In today's sermon, Dr. Brogy addresses biblical prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled and the next great event on God's prophetic calendar, which is the rapture of the church. We are living in biblical times, and we will see that there is no better example of this than Israel, because we are seeing God putting into place the pieces of the puzzle that are necessary for His Son to come at the second coming. Please, join us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, as we begin. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, all the T books in the Bible are found in the New Testament. They're together. I want to speak this morning on Israel's rebirth and the rapture. Now, the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. One of these days, all true Christians will suddenly disappear. They'll be gone off the face of the earth. It's called the rapture. And those who are left behind will be left behind for this single most terrible time in all of human history. And if we're not living in the time frame described in our passage, we're certainly living on the threshold of that time frame. So many of the pieces of the puzzle are being put together. Think about it. Many sitting in this room this morning or listening to me via live stream, in your lifetime, you've witnessed the rebirth of the nation of Israel the regathering of the Jewish people. The first record of population demographics since Josephus in the first century is not until 1880, where in Israel, about 3% or 25,000 of the 7.8 million Jews who were alive were in the land, only 25,000. Then, of course, during World War II, Hitler annihilated some 6 million of the 8 million Jews who were alive on the planet at the time. Of course, God often uses the wrath of man to praise him. And so God turned the hearts of the Jewish people to go to the only place where many of them knew they could go and potentially find safety, and that was to the land of Israel. A boatload of Jewish people came to our own shores, and the President of the United States turned them away, only to go back to the gas chambers and to be annihilated. But today, we went from 600,000 Jews that were in place on April, uh, May the 14th, 1948, when Israel, in a single day, became a nation, to now 7 million Jews, more than half of the Jews on the planet today, are in that land we call Israel. And this is important. You say, well, is it prophetically significant? Absolutely. Because the prophecies for the second coming 
must have the people of Israel in the land for them to fulfill those prophecies. Now, God could have raptured the church in 300 AD and then done so much in a short period of time and brought the Jews back into the land and then fulfilled his prophetic plan, but he didn't do that. But he is doing it in our day. People often say, I wish I could live in biblical times. You are, if you know your scripture. Israel is exhibit A, that God is putting in place those pieces of the puzzle that are necessary for his son to come at the second coming. Isaiah 66 and verse eight predicted that in a single day the people would become a nation. Now think your way through this. In 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted, the city of Jerusalem was burned, the temple was destroyed, virtually all the Jews were expelled. Some gathered back, went for a second shot against Rome. Between 130 and 132, they fought against the Romans and then Hadrian terminated the rights of Jewish people to live in the land. And so for 1900 years, virtually almost 1900 years, the Jews were not in the land of Israel. But God predicted at the end of time he would gather the Jewish people. Pastors who preach that, as I've told you before, even 100 years ago were basically laughed at. They were told that they misunderstood the scripture. Joseph Seiss, a Lutheran pastor, wrote these words in 1856. And I quote, one day the people of Israel will go back to the promised land. I do not know how it will happen, but I believe it will happen because the Bible predicts it will happen. And he wrote that in the day when the vast majority of pastors and theologians denied that simple truth. In fact, when Hadrian ended up conquering Israel in 135 AD, he renamed the land. He called it Syria Palestina after the word for Palestine. And so today we have, quote unquote, Palestinians, really a made up group of people. And wanting to eliminate the memory of the Jews off the face of the earth, he not only renamed the nation, he renamed the city of Jerusalem to Aelia Capitolia, a Latin, uh, uh, an Italian name. And so for virtually 1900 years, if you looked on a map, Israel would not be there. But God predicted, and God is always faithful to his word, that he would regather the Jewish people. Listen to what the prophet Ezekiel said. Therefore say, speaking to Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries among which you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. In Ezekiel 38, God tells us that they have to be in place in the land by the end of time. Listen to these words. After many days, you will be summoned. He's speaking about these nations that are going to go against the people of Israel, how God will put a hook in their jaw and bring them to attack Israel. They will choose to do it on their own, but God will sovereignly orchestrate the circumstances. And so next week, we will look at the rise of Russia in prophecy and the great war of Gog and Magog. After many days, you will be summoned in the latter years. You will come into the land that is restored. That's Israel, restored today from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. Listen to these words, the prophet Zechariah. He writes about 480 years before Christ. He predicted long after the Babylonian captivity was over and the people had come back, he predicted another scattering and another regathering. 
He wrote these words in Zechariah 10, when I scatter them among the peoples, they will remember me in far countries and they with their children will live and come back. The prophet Isaiah in the 43rd chapter writes that before the second coming of the Messiah, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. So for the very first time since 70 AD, both the church, the body of Christ, and Israel coexist on the earth. And many sitting here have witnessed that in their lifetime since you've been born, not to mention other prophecies like the rise of a sodomite society and the political and economic and moral bankruptcy that God predicted would come at the end of time. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle being put together because God is unfolding his prophetic schedule. And so this is the first in a series that I suspect will take at least 15 sermons as we're going to unfold God's prophetic schedule. Now, prophecy accounts for approximately one-third of the Bible. And yet, sadly, in our day, it's not taught. There's widespread ignorance over God's prophetic schedule. Partly, I think some pastors are reluctant because they've seen all these wacko, crazo people set dates, times, years when Christ will return only to be mocked. But I think more recently in our day, because prophecy was largely taught in the 1970s in the evangelical church, the church sadly bought into a new paradigm on how to do church through the influence of Bill Hybels and Rick Warren. And prophecy had no place in their paradigm. In fact, expository preaching has very little place in what they were trying to do. But we're going to learn today that all Bible-believing churches and denominations believe in the rapture. They may not believe in how it will unfold, but they believe in the rapture. Now, sometimes when people think of the rapture, they say, well, it can't happen because there's so many, so many things that haven't happened. And what they are doing is they're confusing the second coming with the rapture of the church. In Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, he's speaking about the tribulation period, that seven-year period that Daniel the prophet wrote about. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. You don't want to miss the rapture of the church because if you miss the rapture, you will be a part of the single most horrible time in all of human history. I think it's helpful sometimes to think of the, the rapture and the second coming maybe in broader terms, in terms of the second coming program and the first coming program. Like take the first coming for instance. We don't restrict it to a singular event like the virgin birth. That's part of the first coming program that Messiah would be conceived of a virgin, but that he would come and live a sinless life, that he would die on a cross, be buried, raised from the dead, and ascend into heaven. That's all part of the first coming program. Think of the second coming as well as a big umbrella, and under that um, second coming program, there's a number of events. The rapture of the church, followed by a seven-plus-year period we call the Great Tribulation, followed by the second coming of Christ to earth, his millennial reign for a thousand years on the earth, then a new heaven and a new earth, and all kinds of events. And so the catching up of the church is distinctly different 
from when Christ will physically come to the earth. Two distinct events, which I hope you will know by the time we're finished, if you don't already. First Thessalonians chapter four, I hope you have a Bible. How many of you have a Bible? Hold it up high. All right, good. Glad to see less electronic Bibles today. <laughs> I'm not against them, but you need a paper copy. You'll get much more out of it, all right? First Thessalonians four, beginning now in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So today, as we think of the rapture and the second coming, which are all part of the second coming program, it's important again to distinguish both. The rapture is one event. The second coming to the earth is a distinctly different event. Here's a chart that might help you to sort it out a little bit. Um, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we just read it, we're going to meet the Lord in the air. Christ will come for his saints, for his church. But at the second coming, we come back with Christ. He comes back with his church. In the rapture, we're caught up, we meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, we come back to rule and reign with the Messiah as he plants his feet on the Mount of Olives, just as promised. Again, at the rapture, he, he takes us to heaven. The second coming, he brings us to earth. When you think of the rapture, it's a non-prophetically driven event. There has never been in the history of the church a single prophecy that is needed to be fulfilled for Christ to come and catch up his people. Whereas the second coming of Christ is clearly a prophetically driven event. And again, I hope you'll see that. Think about the second coming of Christ for just a moment. For that to happen, all kinds of things have to happen. There's going to be the great tribulation period. He'll say those who are in Judea flee into the wilderness. Not those who are in Dallas, but those who are in Judea. Why? Because Israel is back in the land. There's an assumption there that indeed there are events that have to happen. And yet when Jesus describes the catching up of the church, he describes it as an imminent event. You know what we mean by imminency? That it could happen at any moment. Again, nothing needs to be fulfilled for Jesus to come for his church. But if you see prophecy, like the regathering of Israel into the land being fulfilled in your lifetime, then you know that the rapture of the church is that much closer. So Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Where's Jesus? He's in heaven. And when he comes for us, he's going to take us where he is. And yet when you encounter people sometimes, they say, well, Jesus can't come back. The gospel has been preached to the whole world. They'll quote a verse like Matthew 24 and verse 13 where Jesus said the gospel will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. He's not speaking of the rapture in the context. He's speaking of his second coming to earth. And indeed, after the church is removed, the Gentile church is gone, though there are some Jews in it today. 
And who will take over? The Jewish people will. The tribulation is designed, as we're going to learn, not for the bride of Christ, but it's designed for Israel. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble, and God is going to use it to convert the Jews, beginning with what we're going to study next week. It's an important time, and then those Jewish people will take the gospel to the whole world, 144,000, two witnesses, probably Moses and Elijah, not to mention an eternal angel. And so John sees this number that no one can count from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And then the end will come. There are many things that have to happen for the second coming. There has to be a one world leader. He's called the beast. He's called the antichrist. There's going to be a, a new world order with a singular government across the planet. There'll be a one world economy. You will not be able to buy or sell anything unless you take the name of the beast and the number of his name, which is 666. These are all events that must take place before the second coming. That's why the rapture of the church, since it is imminent, could happen at any moment, must happen first. And we'll study that in depth. There are some Christians who say, oh, it will happen after the tribulation. God willing, before we're done, I'll give you 10 reasons why the Bible teaches a pre-tribulational rapture. Now, let me bring you into the historical context here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul, if you read the Acts, preached to the church at Thessalonica. There was no church there. He preached the gospel. People were converted, won to Christ. He was there just three weeks, and he left. And he preached about the return of the Messiah. Paul preached prophecy. He was there only three weeks. I guess he thought it pretty critical for new Christians to know something about prophecy. That's why we include it in the new Christians class, in the discovery class. And we know he taught it because in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 5, he says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? But some of them were obviously a little bit confused. Eschatology is certainly a challenging subject. However, they've been taught that Jesus could come back at any moment. And many concluded that he would come back during their lifetime. That's why some of them quit their jobs. And Paul had to admonish them. And he would say, and to work with your hands and to work hard and not to live an undisciplined life. Some of them just had their heads in the clouds of prophecy and they needed to have their feet on the ground of reality. And so he will admonish them, if anyone will not work, neither should he eat. Don't quit your jobs. You need to work and be busy and occupied until Jesus came. Now, some today are like that. They're so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. But more Christians today, I suppose, are so worldly-minded, they're no heavenly good. But when you read about the return of Christ, whether it's in the rapture or the second coming, in almost every passage, there's an accompanying exhortation of how we should live. It doesn't teach us to be irresponsible, but responsible. Someday, Jesus is going to come back, and Second Peter says he's going to burn the whole planet but I still water my plants every week. You know what I'm saying? So the Thessalonians were concerned about their loved ones who had already died. How long has Paul been gone since he started the church and he writes this letter? Three months. And in three months' time, some of them had already died. And so they're concerned. Will they miss the millennial reign of the Messiah? 
What will happen? They had some serious questions. They weren't doubting the doctrine of the resurrection. That goes all the way back to the Old Testament. They were trying to understand how it would unfold in the specifics of it. Now remember, God's word was not given all at once. Initially, all the early church had was the Old Testament scriptures to preach Jesus from. But slowly, over the course of a few decades, several decades really, the New Testament and its 27 books were given. So when they ask the question, they don't have 1 Thessalonians 4, obviously. But again, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 2, if you look across the page, he said, because they knew something about the Lord's return, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Their questions again concern the timing. Would those who have died, when would they be resurrected? What part would they have in the promised kingdom that God speaks of in Scripture? So they're trying to understand the timing of the bodily resurrection. And so Paul wants to relieve their fears, and he underscores two major truths there in your outline. First, the promise of his return. He begins with the promise of his return. Notice how verse 13 begins, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest, meaning the lost, or you could say the rest of mankind, I think the NAS 2020 renders it, who have no hope. Now please note, Paul identifies three problems these Christians have, and they are the same three problems that many Christians have today. First, they were uninformed, agnosis. Gnosis is knowledge. You put the alpha prefix in front of it, and it cancels it out, and so they had basically no knowledge. And so the old English translates it rightly so, ignorant. They were ignorant. In fact, it's interesting to examine the four occasions when Paul, in four different epistles, addresses ignorance in the church. Here's a chart that might help you. In Romans 11.25, he said, you're not to be ignorant about God's plan for Israel. And my, has there ever been ignorance in the history of the church? It's in our day. Most people have no idea what God is doing with the nation of Israel who call themselves Bible-believing Christians. 1 Corinthians 12, you're not to be ignorant about your spiritual gifts. The day God saved you, he gave you a spiritual gift. I wrote an exam. It's at searchthescriptures.org, 128-question exam. Take it honestly, and it might help you discern what your spiritual gift is. It's not a talent like singing or music or art. On the day God saved you, he gave you a special gift to serve the body of Christ. And if you're a baby Christian, you won't know what that gift is, but as you begin to grow, it will manifest itself. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, you're not to be ignorant about trials. Christians face trials. In the world, you will have philipsis, tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Contrary to the false prosperity teachers of our day who basically paint the Christian life like some walk through the tulips, there's trials and heartache. And then here in 1 Thessalonians 4, you're not to be ignorant on the rapture about Christ's return. Now, God, no doubt, had Paul emphasized these four because to this day there is gross ignorance. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't want you to be uninformed. And God doesn't want you to be uninformed. And that's why I want you to listen carefully today. And so first, they were uninformed. Second, they were not grieving, at least not the way a Christian believer should grieve. And third, they lacked hope 
uh, the kind of hope that God wanted them to have. And so how do you dispel ignorance? You replace it with truth. Now remember, whenever you see the Apostle Paul use the word brethren, it's used in one of two ways. Either he's addressing those who are his brethren um, as descendants of Abraham, Jewish brethren, but most commonly he uses the term as he uses it here to refer to true believers. It's a generic term, you could say brethren and cistern, or I think the newer translations, even the 2020 says brothers and sisters. So he's talking about brothers and sisters who are uninformed about those who are asleep. Now why is it that Paul refers to death as sleep? Well, if you will notice in three successive verses, Paul describes those who have died as asleep. You might want to circle them. First in verse 13, he says it. Then in verse 14, he speaks of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Then in verse 15, we're told at the coming of the Lord, we who are alive shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. In fact, throughout the New Testament, God uses this word sleep to describe someone whose body is sleeping in death. For instance, in John 11, 11, Jesus said our friend Lazarus sleeps, meaning he has died. Or in Acts 7 and verse 60, Stephen, we're told, as he is being stoned to death, fell asleep. Or in Acts 13, 36, Paul is preaching about David who fell asleep and in contradistinction to Jesus, he underwent decay. And then in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20, that great resurrection chapter, Jesus is described as the first fruits of those who fall asleep. So we need to ask if this reference to asleep means that the Christian is in some unconscious state when he dies. Now, there are some, like Seventh-day Adventists, who falsely taught that. Seventh-day Adventists had an incredibly shaky beginning, led by a woman, Ellen G. White, who was just really beyond imagination. She had all these visions, and most cults are started with some extra-biblical revelation that goes beyond the scope of Scripture. And so they teach, and sadly, some others have vainly adopted it, that when you die, body, soul, and spirit sleep in the grave awaiting the resurrection. That is not a biblical truth. The Bible teaches that the moment of physical death, the person inside goes home to be with the Lord. They are present with Christ. The true believer does not sleep in a grave, but clearly, as chapter 4 will reveal, they are awaiting the resurrection of their body while they are in heaven. And so your loved one in heaven this morning is not in his resurrection body. And I hear people say it all the time, you know, and you, you, time to correct it is not at a funeral or they're grieving. Oh, he's there in his glorified body just dancing in heaven. No, he's not. Please join us tomorrow as we continue our series on Israel's Rebirth and the Rapture. If you have enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program GPS-001. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, What about those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question 
biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.